The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods, I'm your host today. And I am very pleased to um, introduce our guest to you, who is Dr. Donald Mecklenbaum. Um, he is a PhD. He is the research director for the Melissa Institute and the distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. He has served as a distinguished visiting professor professor at the University of Miami School of Education. He is one of the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy and North American clinicians voted Dr. Mecklenbaum one of the 10 most influential psychotherapists in the 20th century, uh, which is a wonderful thing. I have attended one of Dr. Mecklenbaum's week-long trainings on cognitive behavioral therapy a number of years ago and found him to be a great teacher. Um, I've seen him present at a number of um, workshops, and he's. Um, I think he has a second career as a stand-up comedian, but um, I, I don't think you probably need to do that. Our, um, our topic today is resilience, and especially as it's related to trauma. Um, Dr. Mecklenbaum's role at the Melissa Institute, which uh, specifically works with um, research on violence and uh, what's important for everybody to understand in terms of trauma is that about 75% of individuals will be impacted, but they will go on to uh, have minimal symptoms or they will bounce back. In contrast, some 25% of people will experience persistent adjustment difficulties related to the trauma. So welcome, Dr. Mecklenbaum. I'm very happy to have you as our guest today. To share this kind of remarkable story with your audience. Well, I think it's important because we think of trauma and we think that that, that affects everyone. Well, I, I think trauma does have an impact. You know, I've been involved uh, most recently with returning service members from Iraq and Afghanistan. I've worked with people who have experienced natural disasters like Hurricane uh, Katrina and Sandy most recently. Uh, most recently, I was uh, consulting at the uh, clinic in Boston that were dealing with the victims of the Boston Marathon. And last week, I actually presented to folks who work on Native Indian reservations and with Native populations, each of whom in their own way have experienced some kind of re- resilience, and which is quite remarkable. You know, the, this ability to bounce back, to, to continue being adaptive. And uh, I'm, I welcome the opportunity to share with you what distinguishes uh, this uh, 
rather consistent 75% who are impacted, uh, sometimes more rather severely, I should note, and, but who go on to evidence resilience versus the 25% who uh, have adjustment. In fact, in this recent book I wrote, Roadmap to Resilience, that your audience is welcome to look at, um, I spell out some of these differences. So uh, uh, permit me, if I may, to uh, develop that topic a bit more for you. Can I just ask one question? Sure, by all means. 75% consistent with with people exposed to to war as opposed to natural disasters as opposed to, like, sexual trauma? Yeah, well, uh, no matter what form of uh, victimization one looks at, whether it's natural disasters or combat or some form of victimization like child abuse or domestic violence and so forth, the, the actual numbers around that uh, depend on the severity of the uh, trauma, its duration, uh, and as we'll come to see, some of the presence of protective factors. But the overall story is that uh, humankind is, is kind of... Uh, has this ability to uh, keep going in spite of. Uh, they have this ability to transform their pain into something good that they could come of it, uh, of making a gift, as I'll highlight. You know, um, research has highlighted that a number of uh, factors uh, contribute to those ongoing adjustment problems. So let, let me just take a moment. I think your audience may find this interesting. Um, in enumerating um, both the cognitive, emotional, behavioral, spiritual. Uh, spiritual is kind of interesting. You know, I, I'll get to it in a moment, but it is worth noting right at the outset that at least in North America, the major way that people cope with some form of trauma is to use some form of spirituality or religion of being part of a group or, or looking to a higher power, trying to find meaning. I'll get to that in a moment, but... At, at, at the cognitive level, um, one of the things that we know contributes to uh, the persistence of this is the degree to which people have a thinking style where they continue to see themselves as victims as compared to being a survivor or, for that matter, even a thriver. You know, uh, they have a kind of uh, people who get stuck have a kind of mental, defeating, negative, self-berating kind of style. You know, you could think about this trauma and its sequelae of post-traumatic stress disorder as sort of a a disorder of non-recovery. You know, uh, mo- most people will be impacted and, and do, in, in some sense, uh, recover. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is, as we talk about trauma, is that trauma means that something has happened to you, usually in the past or is currently going on, and then you tell a story of what happened both to others as well as to yourself. And I'm going to highlight here that the nature of the story that people tell themselves and others can influence uh, the degree to which you sort of stay in that 25% group. You know, to, to, to have ongoing... Uh, difficulties, one of the things that uh, research indicates is that you've got to sort of dwell on it. You've got to ruminate. Um, uh, one of the things that characterize people who get stuck is that they tend to have what is called, uh, without getting too technical, contrafactual thinking. They keep asking themselves why, only if. You know, and, and, and one of the other elements that goes along with that is that they often keep whatever they've experienced a secret. 
research indicates that not sharing the account, uh, engaging in avoidant behavior, avoidant thinking of it, actually has a boomerang effect of, of causing even more intrusive ideation. Uh, so one of the key elements here is that in the aftermath of uh, trauma, no matter what form it takes, um, people have a high range of emotions. Uh, that not only may they feel have fear and anxiety, uh, they may have guilt. They may see themselves having this kind of hindsight bias of, of feeling guilty for what they did or what they should have done. Uh, they may feel shame. That, we're doing work on, on complicated grief. Five to ten percent of people in the aftermath of a trauma, whether it's a loss of a loved one or a loss of a property or a profession or what have you, have an ongoing complicated grief. Uh, uh, they may have sadness, humiliation. They, they may even show moral injury, you know, I, especially when you work with uh, soldiers who have mistakenly uh, shot a buddy or killed an innocent uh, victim, and so forth. And, and all of that leads to the anguish. And it's important to recognize that these kinds of negative emotions have physiological sequelae, consequences. Oh, we'll get to some of that, too. Uh, if, if you've been through this, not only are you avoiding, you might be me also be hypervigilant. You might engage in self-medication. You might try to reduce some of the aftermath by using substances or engaging in safety behaviors or risk-taking. Um, each of these can contribute to the kind of loss spiral. And as a result, people might isolate themselves. Uh, and that kind of isolation will exacerbate the nature of the stress. Uh, they keep themselves in this kind of uh, spiral of, of avoiding uh, that makes them feel more lonely, makes them feel more depressed. What am I saying? I'm saying, look, in the aftermath of trauma, whether it's personal, family, community, you know, I was involved in the aftermath of 9-11 and Columbine shooting and, and other kinds of horrific instances as part of what the Melissa Institute is all about, you start to see uh, the ripple effects this has, not only on the individual, but on the family and even on the community. And as I mentioned, there may often be a spiritual component on this. You know, the people may be in a spiritual struggle. They may feel that they've been punished or abandoned or that they've sinned and deserve this. And we can now see uh, the complexity of the reaction. So, so everything that I've been describing at the thinking level, at the emotional level, at the behavioral, social, and spiritual level, that's really a kind of algorithm or formula that, that if people engage in those kinds of patterns, then uh, they're more likely to stay in that 25%. One last observation, Mary, if I may. And that is, it's important as I go through this to appreciate that resilience and these kinds of post-trauma reactions can coexist. That it's not an either-or. In fact, people could be resilient in one domain and not in other domains. They could be resilient at one time and not at other times. This ability to keep going and the ability to bounce back. Even though you bounce back, there may be anniversary effects, reminders, 
it, it, it's how, you know, when people get to the Roadmap to Resilience book, I have a lot of examples. And, and uh, uh, in a moment, we could talk about if there's any merit to this analysis. So if what I'm understanding, I think, is that um, if you have those protective factors, does the trauma stay with you? I mean, is it always there? It's just... It's just you're dealing with it because well, I'm, I mean, I'm wondering... what happens is, you know, given the, the loss of life, um, you know, you, you don't cure PTSD. You don't, you know, there, there are certain kinds of grievous events. I've worked with parents who have accidentally killed their child or who's had a child that has uh, uh, died by suicide or by homicide. And, you know, the, these family members are impacted for a life. You know, the key question is, how do they transform their pain into a quality of life that's worth living? How, how do you keep going in spite of these losses? Uh, the, the sense of sadness, loss, uh, the sense of anger and shame may still continue. And we'll be right back after this commercial with more um, from the Roadmap to Resilience. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Kelly covers our relationship with food and teaches us how easy eating well and living well can be taking us on a weekly food journey, guiding us to a more rich and vibrant life. So tune in every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Eat Well to Live Well with Kelly Hill. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
Welcome back, everyone, one hour at a time. Our guest today is Dr. Donald Mecklenbaum, who is a clinical psychologist who has taught at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada for 35 years. And he is also the research director of the Melissa Institute for Violence Prevention in Miami, Florida. And we're talking about resilience, which um, in order to do that, we have to kind of set the stage in terms of talking about trauma. And um, to recap a little bit of what we talked about in our last segment, in terms of people, um, 75% of the people who experience trauma will, um, will be able to cope or bounce back, and 25% are the people who um, seem to just um, get stuck. And Dr. Mecklenbaum was talking to us about part of the reason that people, that 25% of people get stuck, it's, it's, it's about the nature of the story that they tell themselves and others. Um, they may keep the trauma a secret. They will ruminate. They'll dwell on it. Um, they keep asking why. They think about, well, what if I've done this? So it's really not a mindset of recovery that um, that the people are going through. I think the other thing that Dr. Mecklenbaum spoke to from my perspective was this whole concept of complicated grief because I believe as a society we don't honor grief enough that grief and grieving is a part of life and it's something that is very healthy when you do it. It's just painful, and I think that's maybe why we avoid doing it. So, Dr. Mecklenbaum, if you want to take up yeah. where you left off. Well, sure. I, you know, uh, when we talk about tra- trauma, these are landmark events that uh, may shatter one's beliefs uh, about safety or predictability and the like. And uh, it represents a loss. It violates one's normal routines. It violates uh, the loss of not only life and property, uh, but it also represents the loss of a future dream uh, and potential. I mean, just think of all the natural disasters that people have endured from tsunamis to earthquakes to... um, floods and the like, you know, so life, unfortunately, has suffering built into it, and uh, one of the things we now know is how do people function in spite of that kind of suffering. In in the aftermath of uh, these kinds of losses, people go through a form of mourning, uh, some kind of grieving process, and uh, while many people are given the the sudden loss of uh, a loved one, uh, for instance, uh, able to uh, appreciate that loss, uh, develop a new normal, in a, in a sense, if I could use that phrase. Um, there, there turns out to be about 5 to 10% of people for whom that kind of grieving process uh, is rather persistent and affects their adjustment, uh, their quality of life. And, you know, as I'm going to highlight, you know, we now have hope that there are treatment interventions that could help people get, quote-unquote, as you described it, unstuck from that process, uh, take the hot spots of the events that they lived in, and, and share those uh, with support of others. In fact, I, I think it's worthwhile to think about what are the factors that contribute to uh, people uh, bouncing back. Uh, there's a fair amount of research that indicates that uh, 
the nature of the social supports that people have, uh, not only the real ones but the perceived ones, uh, the nature of their ability to confront their fears, the ability to have and cultivate positive emotions like optimism and hope, uh, the degree to which they're psychologically flexible, and uh, m- most importantly, the way they find some kind of meaning and transform their pain into a gift that others could benefit from. Uh, in addition, uh, there's a need for their being physical fit. So, so we can actually take a, a moment, if we may, Mary, and uh, discuss each of these a little bit in detail, and you could appreciate um, the kind of protective factors that some of the individuals may have. Now, once again, I want, I want to go back and remind folks that uh, resilience and trauma, uh, negative emotions, can coexist. They, these are not mutually exclusive. Uh, and, and therefore, the degree to which we can nurture more positive emotions, access and attract social supports becomes interesting. Um, uh, strong positive relationships are associated uh, not only with being resilient, but we now know that it contributes to physical health uh, and emotional well-being. We, we know that when people socially isolate themselves, keep it a secret, that their level of distress, their level of depression goes on. You know, pe- people could ask themselves, you know, when bad things happen, uh, to whom are they connected? Who could they count on? When, they ha- when they're in need? Uh, who do they go to when they want to feel better? Uh, especially if, when they've been down, when they're grieving. Uh, who do they go to for emotional support, uh, for advice, for specific things? I mean, this kind of support is multifaceted, and we know that those individuals who have uh, these kinds of support agents, these guardian angels who are out there, uh, not only make them feel better, but we now know that there are physiological changes that go along with this. There are processes known as oxytocin and vasopressin and so forth that enhance uh, physically the ability to read social cues, to feel a need to affiliate, uh, and that these kinds of biological changes actually dampen down negative emotions, the amygdala and the lower brainstem. Uh, it, it helps lower the level of stress hormones, um, and it can trigger empathy and compassion. And, and, and note that these kinds of social supports are not only the people in their lives, but it may also be the role models. Who do they look up to? Uh, who, who can inspire them? Who acts as a, a loving mentor or a guidepost? Uh, I, I think people need to take stock, in, especially in the aftermath of trauma, on uh, who are the resources, the social capital that they bring to this. We now know that people who were social isolates beforehand, uh, individuals who have few social supports, are much more likely to be in that group who have ongoing adjustment problems. And, and not only that, you want to make sure that you're hanging around with and fitting into a group who will be not encouraging you to use poor coping procedures like substance abuse or risk-taking behavior. You know, uh, people need to take responsibility. This this kind of resilience billion isn't hiring overnight. It occurs over a period of time. 
that, that's sort of the social domain, Mary. Does that, does that make sense to you? It does, uh, although I question oftentimes, though, that um, I don't know how prepared we are for that. I'm thinking about it specifically military families and, and people in the military because everyone around them is, is going through the same thing. So you know, how, that, how does that work? Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, um, I've been working with uh, folks who treat especially National Guardsmen, and it turns out that active duty who are all on the same post, who have support, who have preparation, uh, t- tend to do better than the National Guard who are more distributed, you know. So, you know, having that social milieu and the preparation for it, you know, having this set that this may indeed occur. So, so there are lots and lots of yellow ribbon and other kinds of supports that the military have put in place. The real message that I really want the public to take away with this is that returning service men and women uh, are not, you know, on the edge and ready to blow. Most of them have a great deal to offer society. You know, we we owe them a great deal of honor and privilege and a sense of their personal sacrifice. I I have worked with uh, uh, many folks who have had uh, physical disabilities, amputations, and the like, and the level of achievement. I mean, I you know, we just came out of the Paralympics, and you and you watch that, and you go, oh my God, how could folks? you know, be able to evidence that kind of relationship uh, with others and an ability to enjoy life and be competitive. You know, you watch that and it's inspirational. And and that's the message that people should take about returning service members. I I, I hold them in the highest regard and uh, hopefully one of the efforts of this communication. You know, these these folks have the ability to confront their fears, uh, to evidence uh, courage, uh, to re-expose themselves instead of being avoidant. You know, they, they, they have the ability to surmount their fears. In fact, they look upon fear often as a kind of guide, a warning sign. <laughs> as someone described it to me, I, I, I invite fear to tea. So I, I sort of, uh, uh, helps me keep sharp and uh, recheck and reestablish. You know, and, and, and I always maintain they convey to me a sense of optimism. Um, you know, and, and, and it's realistic outlook. It's not just being um, Pollyannish. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things we know is that hope fuels and ignites resilience. And the best way to have goal, hope is to use some kind of practical goal setting that conveys a kind of future orientation that pulls for planfulness and that bolsters confidence. So these folks who you're describing, these families, you know, while they're impacted, uh, you know, they, they're able to be realistic and optimistic of maintaining hope, of fear, dealing with their fears. And the other thing that they do that has real neurobiological consequences is they're able to cultivate positive emotions. You know, they have compassion, forgiveness, kindness to others, altruism. They have a kind of pay-forward notion. And many of them even evidence humor in the face of darkness. And that there are real benefits that accrue 
In, in fact, the, the research indicates that when one gives, there are more benefits than when you just receive back. These people are all giving. Um, the, the native population who I mentioned I work with have an interesting routine of putting uh, what they call wounded warriors through a uh, spiritual kind of healing of a sweat lodge and chanting and drumming and so forth. But here's the key. They also take the wounded warrior, put him or her in the middle of a circle, and ask that person to share with the rest of the community what are the lessons they learned. You know, when I, when I said I, uh, as a therapist, listen to people tell stories, I don't only listen to the stories they tell, but the stories of how they survived. And I think that's worthy of our next segment. And we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, today we're talking about resilience with Dr. Donald Michelenbaum, who is the clinical director, research director, I should say, of the Melissa Institute for Violence Prevention in Miami, Florida. Dr. Michelenbaum has presented in all 50 states as well as internationally, and he has recently published a book called Roadmap to Resilience, a guide for military trauma victims and their families. Um, so, 
You know, this whole concept of um, paying it forward and um, having hope and bolstering, you know, um, confidence is not usually what we talk about when we talk about treatment for PTSD. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a clinician, so I uh, spend a lot of time doing therapy with individuals, families, groups, and the like. And I get paid to listen to people's stories. Uh, and usually the story that they start off with is the story of what they have endured, uh, the kind of details of the trauma and, and what was the worst moment and that kind of thing. But I, I've come to appreciate that it's my job, if I'm going to help them, to make sure that I hear what one radio commentator, Paul Hoffey, used to call the rest of the story. And the rest of the story that these folks have to tell is what did they do to survive? What are the strengths, both they, their families, their cultural group, have evidence in the past that they can now use to cope with the aftermath? You know, what are the signs of strengths and resilience? What, what, what protective factors? What have they been able to accomplish in spite of and then when I get those nuggets, when I get those signs of resilience uh, in their story, not just the level of distress. I mean, you have to hear that as a clinician. You have to, people need to feel heard. They need to feel respected. They need to feel trusted so that they feel comfortable in sharing these intimate things, especially if it's been some form of a, abuse or sexual victimization or neglect or some other kind of cumulative pile-up stresses that they've experienced, not only do you have to listen to that pain and its aftermath, but I am an exquisite listener of what people have been able to accomplish in spite of. And when I get those little nuggets and put it back in people's laps, I ask them, how did you do that? What, what led you to? And it turns out that it these how and what questions are often quite useful in, in getting people to share the nature of the protective factors that we've talked about. How have they, in some sense, accessed, attracted, used social supports? How have they, in some sense, found a role model, someone who inspires them, someone they can look up to, someone they can go to for help and guidance and social support, I, I try to ascertain from them how have they confronted their fears? How have they surmounted their fears? What have they done with their guilt, their blame, their shame? You know, it's interesting to view these kinds of emotions almost like a commodity. You know, I ask people, well, what would you do with all that anger? What would you do with all that fear, that, that shame, that guilt, the sense of humiliation, the, the sadness that builds up? It, you know, it's interesting. People will then say, you know, I stuffed it. I drank it away. I, you know, I avoided, I acted out. I did. So if they do that, then I can ask them, what is the impact? What is the toll? What is the price they and others pay? I ask that question, impact, toll, price that they and others pay quite often. Sometimes the clients say, I don't know, to which I say, I don't know either. How could we go about finding out? So what I'm trying to do is to help clients appreciate that they're not just mere victims of circumstances, 
and how they appraise their events, the kinds of feelings and thoughts and how they behave are all interconnected. And if I can help people appreciate that level of interconnection, if I, if I can get people to develop and maintain a more optimistic future-oriented, if I can get them to help develop and cultivate these positive emotions, uh, being compassionate and forgiving not only towards others, but very most importantly to themselves. How, how do you help them develop grit, perseverance? And, how do you help them develop a quality of life, of rebuilding in the aftermath? How do you teach them to have a broader perspective? And most importantly, how do you teach them to be psychologically flexible? To appreciate that some things in their lives are not changeable, and yet others are. And how do you get them to accept that which is not changeable? These losses may not come back, be recoverable, and, and, and therefore, can we help them find meaning? Can we help them develop the kind of moral compass, compass that comes with spirituality and religion? Uh, some, some people have used the higher power. I mentioned that spirituality is the major way that people use cope in the aftermath of, of this. And people feel that God's at their side, that they never felt alone. Uh, they've been able to use their faith, join groups and others, to use prayer, liturgical dancing, praying, singing, and so forth to help them. How do you help them make a gift? Like, like that native population. If they're wounded warriors, what is the lessons that others, that their children, that society should benefit? How do they transform their pain? You know, th think about the Melissa Institute. You know, here was a young girl who was going to school in Washington University in St. Louis, and she was carjacked and brutally murdered. So how, how does her family cope in the aftermath of that, given that kind of tragedy? So they decide to transform their pain into something good that will come of it. So if they could prevent one other death like that, then maybe she did not die in vain. Think about the mothers against drunk driving. Think about the, the variety of other organizations that exist where people have transformed their pain into something good that could come of it. Uh, you, you don't recover from such losses, you know, uh, suicide of a, of a child. You know, I, people then create a suicide prevention kind of thing, the helplines and the like. I think that therapy is designed to help bolster resilience by having them access these kinds of protective factors. That puts Those you in the 75% group. Questions. Those are all great questions, and as a therapist, how do you help someone when they're feeling hopeless and they aren't—they don't have a spiritual connection, and they believe that you know their God has abandoned them, and they're kind of stuck in those really negative, repetitive thoughts? Yeah, and you know, especially you know when they when they're in a spiritual struggle, you know, if they have a belief in a higher power that he or she or whatever could have prevented this, you know. And, and one of the things that happens as a result of that kind of struggle is that people often get angry and have resentment. And we now know that anger undermines 
emotional processing. It, 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 it interferes with the healing process. So the key question is, how do you help them develop a healing story? You know, I, I often show a film called Where Was God on 9-11? And one of the, and this was a frontline documentary, and one of the characters, one of the people in the film is angry at, at God, who he thinks could have prevented 9-11 and so forth. And one of the things he says is that in spite of that, he feels he's a good Christian. So we pick up on what is a good Christian, you know, and, and sense of forgiveness, understanding, you know, and, and if he stays angry, if, if the patient takes that emotions of the anger, the sadness, the resentment, what, what does he do with that? And what is the impact? What is the toll? You know, we'll, we'll be able to talk more about the specifics of, of, of the therapy process. And uh, I, I, I get real concerned about, uh, uh, A, if they feel hopeless and they feel those kinds of feelings, the first thing I do is validate it. I, I, you know, I, I tell them they have every right, given what they've been through, what they've experienced, you know, that if in fact they were not sad and angry, then I would be deeply deconcerned. You know, as a therapist, one of the things I do is I, I actually commend people on having that negative emotions, you know, the, the, those kinds of realistic responses to these kinds of traumatic events. You know, you should be terrified after 9-11 when all those innocent people have died. Or, or if you're a parent at Newtown, you know, and, 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 and you, you've just lived through a horrific event and the loss of a child. You know, the, the, those parents aren't going to heal. You don't cure that. You, 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 you see the degree to which they have made a commitment to this. You know. Let me give you a, a few examples that are on the uh, Roadmap to Resilience website, you know, because I encourage your folks to go to the www.roadmaptoresilience.org because that website now solicits from readers examples of resilience. So you have a mother whose son was a fireman, and he died at 9-11, and his body was never found. And that mother occasionally gets calls that they found body parts. Now imagine the impact no. of that, Mary. I so this mother has now decided to take those body parts, put it in the shoebox, and it'll be buried with her. Another mother reports that her son too vanished, but they discovered that he had donated blood prior to the 9-11. So they have a funeral service where they now are going to bury the vial of blood. That, that they're using spirituality, they're using their religion and faith as a way to put a finishing touch of completing the story. And if, if you go to, if your listeners go to this website, you're going to see, this is like viral. People are now submitting their own examples. And I encourage your listeners to to submit their own examples of instances of where they as an individual, a family, an organization or community have evidence resilience. You know, our job is not to just focus in on post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, suicidality, and so forth. I think, if anything, I value this opportunity to get the message out that we need to attend to the rest of the story. And we'll be right back after this commercial message. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour Time. Our guest today is Dr. Donald Michelenbaum, who is the Research Director of the Melissa Institute for Violence Prevention in Miami, Florida. Um, we've been talking about resilience in response to trauma, and his newest book is called A Roadmap to Resilience, A Guide for Military Trauma Victims and Their Families. And in the book, he talks about cognitive fitness, um, emotional fitness, spiritual fitness, behavioral fitness, as well as um, physical fitness. And I was wondering if you wanted to um, yeah, like a little let, bit about let me pick that. Up, let me pick up, if I may, on that physical okay. fitness, because uh, uh, it's important to recognize that you need that as a good base for this, that you know, being physically fit, mentally sharp, and emotionally strong is important. And uh, people could be rather proactive uh, uh, one of the things that we now know is, for instance, that when people are physically active, like in the form of exercise, this has a lot of basic um, physiological benefits. Depression goes down, and it actually, given the neuroplasticity of the brain, you know, in terms of the way in which the brain and, and actually genetic makeup is influenced by social environment, it, it can actually increase the size of the lower brain part called the hippocampus that is involved in emotionality, increases the brain volume, it bolsters endorphins that give uh, a sense of... Uh, fulfillment and fitness uh, and resilience that people have. 
So, um, you know, doing things like exercising and eating right. And the other thing that becomes really important, especially in the aftermath of trauma, is that sleep behavior is often affected. You know, so people may have nightmares or uh, insomnia or difficulty sleeping or multiple awakenings and so forth. And, and, and people who have difficulty sleeping, um, uh, that's going to shorten their fuse during the day. They're going to become more irritable. They're going to become more hypervigilant. They're going to become more over-responsive emotionally and the like. And in fact, in the Roadmap to Resilience book, I have a large section there um, on uh, how to improve uh, uh, sleep patterns, you know, in terms of the way in which one can use a whole variety of uh, behavioral strategies um, uh, of using the bed only for sleep purposes, of uh, uh, not watching the clock, of, of engaging in certain kinds of activities before going to sleep and during sleep behavior, um, you know, I also uh, have sections there on the way in which people could use emotion regulation techniques uh, like mindfulness and relaxation, acceptance strategies. I even have a section on how you can talk back to the amygdala. How can you actually take the frontal part of your brain, which is involved with planning, monitoring, evaluating, and use that to control the, the, the lower brainstem, which is really the emotional charge. Uh, this becomes really important, and especially, you know, the research that's now emerging with children. You know, they were able to look at children in high-risk areas. For instance, I consult in high-risk areas in South Los Angeles or in Miami or in other urban ghettos where there is a high likelihood that by the time these children enter school, in kindergarten, first grade, and the like, um, many, if not almost all, would have witnessed a violent death, would have been exposed to either urban violence, domestic violence, physical abuse, neglect, uh, having parents who are depressed or have substance abuse problems and the like. And one of the things we know, uh, uh, if we look at this from a lifespan perspective, is that the more of these kinds of adverse childhood experiences, like if they have five or more, not only this affect their, their, their sense of well-being, their ability to attach, but there's now increasing evidence that that kind of Physical, physical impact of those traumas affects the brains. So the left side of these children's brains are seven times less active than the right side. That the, these children have a greater likelihood of having a startle response. They have more likely have a compromised immune system. Uh, they are more likely to have difficulties with concentration and, and memory. And, and here's Can the good news. Here's the good news, that there are now cognitive behavior trauma-focused interventions that could actually help these children. That's amazing. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, if in fact people go to the Melissa Institute website, uh, they will see uh, a lot of handouts where we have reviewed this literature and, and also enumerated ways that parents, teachers, clinicians, and others can provide these children with prosthetic tools to compensate for the physiological difficulties that they have. 
And, and if this is more complicated, if these children come from poverty or a minority, that, that, then they enter school, you know, really well behind. I mean, these children enter school maybe two to 3,000 vocabulary words behind their middle-class, non-victimized counterparts. And, and here, here's an example of a, a Melissa Institute project uh, it turns out that reading comprehension by grade three is one of the best predictors of who finishes high school. If you can read by grade three, you have a much lower likelihood of getting into trouble with the law. In fact, your listeners can go to the Melissa Institute website, all one word, M-E-L-I-S-S-A, institute.org, and download for free 500 videos on how to read stories to children, how to boast of that vocabulary how to build protective factors. The Melissa Institute is, is sort of dedicated to uh, working with victims of violence, whether it's children, adolescents, or adults. Um, so the Melissa is Institute the is, is committed to this kind of resilience bolstering activities. Is that the best way for people to get in touch with you or to buy your book? How would they get to your book? Well, one way to get the book is to, you could uh, just go to www.roadmaptoresilience.com or you can go to amazon.com and just go and look up Meichenbaum, M-E-I-C-H-E-N-B-A-U-M and they can go to the Melissa Institute which is www.melissa, institute, all one word, dot org. And if they go on that and go to Author Index and scroll to my name, their days will be full reading all of that kind of material that's available for free. And you also have an excellent book on cognitive behavioral therapy as well. I want to put a plug in for that one. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a that, that that's sort of you know as you said one of the originators there, and you know you could sort of. Uh, look at the variety of materials that we have on the Melissa Institute website, and I'm more than happy to dialogue with anyone who may be listening to this. And I really want your listeners to read resilience engendering stories offered by folks like themselves. You know, I, I said at the outset that we have a remarkable story to tell this hour, and I, I hope that has come across and that the factors that I enumerate, you know, the social supports, the positive emotions, the finding meaning, making a gift, using one's faith, being physically fit, cultivating positive emotions, that those kinds of things become the mental checklist that people use in the aftermath of suffering that goes along with living. I want to thank you for being our guest today. I'm very honored that you took the time to um, enlighten us because I think that this is a much more positive approach to trauma and a much more hopeful approach to trauma. And um, and it's something that we need to understand better and to think more about in terms of what's right with people instead of what's wrong with people. So thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to present. And I look forward to further future discussions. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone. You too, Mary.
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.